Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Still to come on our show, the Prime Minister's choice to dedicate the old U.S. Embassy in Ottawa to Indigenous Canadians is not pleasing everyone, including some Indigenous architects. But first, we're about a year away from marijuana becoming legal in Canada. The Trudeau government has a bill currently before Parliament that would make marijuana legal for recreational use for people above the age of at least 18 by July 1st of 2018. Getting ahead of that, though, a group of medical associations in our country came together to create new guidelines for lower-risk cannabis use. The lead author of these guidelines is Dr. Benedict Fisher with the Center for Addiction and mental health. He actually popped by my office to quickly chat about these guidelines shortly after they were released. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. I guess we'll start off by having you walk us through these guidelines. What are the guidelines for lowering the risk of cannabis use uh, amongst Canadians? Yeah, so I'll begin by a little bit of context. Uh, so we're talking about cannabis use. Uh, which is engaged in by millions of Canadians and we're going towards legalization in this country, which means that we're legalizing not for the sake of legalizing, but we want to improve public health. So the question now becomes, how do we do that? And we know cannabis use clearly comes with risks for acute and long-term harms. Uh, however, the science clearly says a number of the key variables that determine risk and harm outcomes are really related to the choices and the behaviors of cannabis users. In other words, users themselves can make certain decisions and choices in regards to their use that will modify the risk for various kinds of harms. So we went to the science, we systematically reviewed the science for evidence on what those variables would be so that we can translate them into recommendations that will help both health and addiction professionals, but also users to modify and ideally reduce their risks related to cannabis use if they're deciding that they want to use. I'm not going to, you know, uh, number them down and list all 10 of them, but I'll give you some of the highlights. So a no-brainer, if you forgive the pun, uh, so to speak, is um, that if you want to completely eliminate your risks from cannabis use, don't use, okay? But then if you're deciding to use things like the age of onset for young people is a really critical factor for determining the likelihood or severity of subsequent uh, risks and harms. In other words, the later people begin to use in life, especially when it comes to teenage years, the later in, in teenage age or even pushing into early ad adulthood, the, the less likely you are to encounter serious risks for harms. So that's an important message to inform general prevention. Another important one is the intensity or frequency of your use pattern really shapes the risk for various harms significantly. In other words, it makes a very big difference whether you're using daily 
intensively versus maybe once a week or occasionally. In the, the latter scenario, you're a lot less likely to experience acute or long-term uh, harms. It's a little bit similar to low-risk drinking guidelines around patterns. And then cannabis use impaired driving is another important one. The science clearly says, regardless of the law, what the law says and detection of metabolites and so on, that more or less at minimum, uh, your body or mind is impaired within six hours at minimum of use. So categorically, within six hours of consumption, do not get behind the wheel of a car, don't ride your bike, don't operate cranes or heavy machinery because your your cognitive, mental, psychomotor abilities are impaired and you're at much elevated risk to harm yourselves uh, yourself or others. So these are just some of the examples of the concrete recommendations that we distilled out of the science and translated into concrete recommendations. And now it's also up to health authorities, governments, regulators, local health and addictions folks to take those things and effectively disseminate them into the population. Another interesting one, but also may seem like common sense for many people, uh, is the fact that you're advising people not to smoke cannabis, which is probably the most common way it's consumed. But you say if you want to lower your risks, don't smoke it, don't spark up. Yes, it's an important and a bit of a tricky area. When it comes to pulmonary bronchial harms, and there are clearly such problems related to cannabis smoking, which, as you say, is the most common route of use, the best way is actually to not to if you want to lower your risks in that arena to not smoke combusted burnt uh, cannabis as you know probably there's a a number of uh, like alternative use ways have been emerging like uh, vaping uh, e-cigarette devices but also for example edibles have become a common phenomenon so for reducing pulmonary bronchial risks, these alternative ways are surely better because they basically avoid the pulmonary bronchial risk problems. At the same time, some of them have their own risk uh, characteristics. Um, it's, it's not given at all that vaping or e-cigarette devices are safe. They're likely to be safer, Uh, but definitely not safe. But then also around edibles, you have things that if you don't know exactly how much THC is in your product and there's the onset of psychoactive, uh, the the delay of psychoactive effect onset, a lot of people go and use a lot more than they would naturally want to use. And then because of the delay of psychoactive effects and then all of a sudden they consume too much and all this hits them and hits them a lot harder than what they wanted or what they're ready for. So there's a lot of sort of other hidden risks with these alternatives that people have to be, again, aware of and make the right decisions. Some of this is a good point to emphasize that some of those recommendations need to be complemented by regulatory or informational measures. So, for example, to make good decisions about edibles, the edible product needs to be clearly regulated in terms of THC, product labeling, regulation, uh, the informer, the, the user needs to know what they're using and what they're choosing to use. Kind of like light beer and strong beer so that people know that they're consuming something that has a higher concentration of alcohol as opposed to a lower concentration. Exactly. That's a really, really good analogy. You know, 
you or I or many people, they go to the liquor store and they don't just like randomly buy anything they see in a bottle, right? They go either to the wine or the beer, or they pick the low alcohol or high alcohol beer, and partly it's for taste, but partly it's also for health management and risk considerations. Another interesting guideline is about mental health. If you know of mental health problems, avoid cannabis. Why is that? Is cannabis a trigger? Yeah, so there has been a lot of focus on mental health outcomes associated with cannabis, specifically psychosis, which is a, you know, clinically when it occurs, a, a very uh, unfortunate and, and grave uh, con uh, gl clinical condition. So we want to avoid that. Now, uh, there's been a lot of myths out there or assumptions that, you know, cannabis causes psychosis and everyone who use, uses cannabis, that's definitely not the case. We know that there are associations, limited associations. Nevertheless, there are associations between especially free, high-frequency, potent cannabis use and psychosis. However, they occur also mostly in people who have a genetic or family predisposition for psychosis. In other words, a lot of the psychosis associated with cannabis use is not freely and categorically caused by the cannabis. It basically functions as a trigger, as you describe it. And so it's, of course, prudent for people who have this predisposition or people who have other substance use disorders and are sort of predisposition for those problems in general to probably advisably i speak you know i speak from a health and health promotion perspective it's advisable that these people do not engage in use and on the mental health factor as well if you're using it as a coping mechanism obviously there are underlying issues that need to be dealt with in terms of mental health uh, or seeking seeking help as opposed to using it just for recreational use. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is interesting. First of all, the recreational and therapeutic or whatever you want to call it usages are not delineated in a black and white fashion. I mean, a lot of people who we would label as recreational users actually probably every, every user, you know, derives some benefit from the use. Otherwise, it would be nonsensical for them to use it. And we know that a lot of people with mental health problems use psychoactive substances, not just cannabis, but also alcohol or even actually tobacco, because it subjectively alleviates some of their mental health symptoms or problems that are otherwise not addressed. And sometimes actually that for some people that works quite well. Otherwise, again, they wouldn't be doing it, although it comes can come with a lot of risks. At the same time, if this is what's going on, then really what this is pointing to is that these underlying issues are not professionally or effectively dealt with by in the way they should be dealt with. And even though people may feel, well, this is a good thing for me, it's probably a good reason for them to go and seek professional assessments and help to find out you know, how can these issues really best be dealt with. So you talked about myths. What are the biggest myths out there that you see about marijuana use? The biggest myth is probably at this point the most relevant myth is that it's really not harmful or that there's no risks. And you know, there's a lot of uh, young people where that attitude in some shade of gray kind of exists. 
And that's obviously something we have to tackle. This is clearly not a risk-free substance. At the same time, the risks are, they're diverse, but they're also limited, especially relative to when we compare it with alcohol or tobacco. And at the same time, as I was saying at the launch earlier this morning, I think we created or amplified the extent of these myths a little bit by our very failed or inappropriate prohibition policies where young people would say, look, I have this drug here and I know it may have some risks, but it's really certainly not more harmful than alcohol or tobacco. It can't, I can't overdose really. It won't kill me likely unless I maybe get impaired and drive. So I, we have this drug. I can get criminally arrested and even go to jail and have a criminal record for half my life. Whereas the other stuff that's likely more harmful to me, I can buy in the grocery and in the liquor store. So what's going on here? And I think that severe imbalance in our policy approaches or what's been conveyed, that sort of double standard has amplified a lot of people's, young people's impressions that cannabis is actually really not harmful. Our control systems have distorted real impressions. And of course, we haven't because it's been illegal. For example, it's been illegal for teachers to talk about this really in schools, right? Except for sort of the fear-mongering stuff. There's no one in educational settings because it's been a criminally illegal behavior to go and say, look, don't do this, but if you do it, here are some tips or whatever. So we're hoping to primarily while pointing out realistically the risks and what they are and what their limitations are to ensure that especially young people where most cannabis use is going on, that they're realizing the risks clearly exist. Some of them are minor, some of them are pretty serious, but here are some tips and recommendations based on science, not on ideology of what people can do to reduce or limit those risks. So it's a very commonsensical, pragmatic, public health-oriented approach to the reality of the fact that we have millions of Canadians using this drug, uh, especially young people, and we're going into a policy reality of legalization where the onus is now on us to really do the right thing and everything possible to make this as safe as possible for people. All right, that was Dr. Benedict Fisher with the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. He's also the lead author of the new guidelines on lower-risk cannabis use. Coming up after the break on McLean's On the Hill, why Indigenous architects are speaking out against a new Indigenous center the Prime Minister dedicated to Indigenous peoples this week. 